Hello, and welcome to the MyCare Champion Cast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Laura Hall of the Michigan Health and Hospital Association. Last year, we talked about the impact of the opioid crisis in Michigan and what we can do to help. Today, we're revisiting this important topic as we talk about some of the new steps being taken to help prevent opioid abuse and overuse. Much of this episode is going to focus on what's happening with new opioid legislation and how it will impact care in Michigan hospitals. We'll talk to an emergency medicine physician about how his hospital has tackled the opioid crisis and what patients should know about safe pain management. We'll also go into more detail about MAPS, Michigan's automated prescription system, which physicians will soon be required to review before they prescribe a controlled substance scheduled two through five to a patient. But first, we'll talk to Paige Foltz, Director of Advocacy at the MHA, to learn a little bit more about this new legislation. So the opioid legislation, a lot of people are realizing that this is the first step in helping the opioid crisis in Michigan. So the approach is focused on prescription drugs, and to tackle the overall issue, we'll have to focus on prescription drugs and then also uh, illicit drugs or diversion of what's happening. So the specific opioid legislation that is in place now um The biggest pieces to pay attention to are we have some effective dates coming up at the end of this month. Uh, At the end of March, uh, the biggest piece would be the bona fide patient-prescriber relationship, and that will come into effect at the end of March, and that just ensures that there's a continuity of care uh, and that patients are able to um, continuously be seen by the same provider and that their information is adequately being tracked tracked in their uh, electronic medical records uh, that are being used. So what is this going to mean uh, in terms of how will this impact care in Michigan hospitals? I'd say it provides more support for our hospitals. Um, They already are offering a lot of different types of patient care and alternative therapies, and they offer a lot of uh, multiple modalities when it comes to treating pain. And so overall, I do think that this type of legislation helps raise awareness to citizens in Michigan and provide support for what our hospitals are doing and we're already doing to help curb the opioid crisis. Uh, It is just kind of expanding it and showing that there are other alternatives out there And when, you know, you get a prescription filled within a hospital, um, it provides a conversation and a starter tool. I do also think it's going to um, help patients have more access to education. And like I'd mentioned a little bit earlier, um, get the conversation going with the provider. So the patients and the providers have the open communication um, on their treatment of care. And it is already happening. I just think that this just gives um, another level uh, to provide a gateway to that conversation. And the last time we talked, we actually talked about MAPS and um, our, what's changing, I guess, in terms of MAPS and its usage. So there are a few key pieces. MAPS will be required as of June 1st. Um, If you're prescribing a scheduled uh, two through five uh, drug that is a controlled substance, uh, providers will be required to run a MAPS report at that point. Um, Providers will also be required to register uh, in MAPS to be able to run those types of reports. So that is something that is new in the opioid uh, laws that are coming down the pipeline. Uh, Again, that particular piece isn't going to be uh, required till June 1st. So providers have some time to um, get used to that and get registered if they aren't already. What, what other things do healthcare providers need to know about this legislation? 
I'd say the internal process uh, at every hospital is being handled differently. Uh, if individuals have questions, they should definitely reach out to their supervisor as these new laws are being implemented. But also the MHA uh, Keystone Center has a collaborative work group right now, and they're working together with members uh, to kind of develop a um, best practice uh, or uh, you know, the, the types of approaches, they're going to be merging ideas of what's being used in multiple hospitals to meet the opioid requirements. So some of them will be uh, new practice options that people aren't, aren't using, and then also um, some of the best practices that other hospitals are using. And that tool will be available uh, for MHA members. And where can people find more information in addition to that? The best place to look would be MHA's uh, opioid epidemic webpage. Uh, we do have one with multiple resources. Uh, that type of information will be posted there uh, once it's complete. And then I do think that, you know, the information that's available from the work group, uh, just kind of to be on the lookout for that coming down. Next, we'll talk to Kim Gatica, Acting Deputy Director of the Department of Licensing and Regulatory Affairs, or LARA, to learn more about MAPS and how it's used to prevent the misuse of opioids. MAPS is a really good tool for prevention uh, in terms of having the practitioner log into the system and checking what other controlled substances, scheduled two to five drugs, a patient has received. Um, it includes dispensation of those types of drugs uh, that a patient would have received from a pharmacy or a uh, physician who dispenses in their office. And uh, the, the nice value of seeing what they've received is they can look at their history and um, over the past two years and or as far back as two years and um, see if they've uh, received these types of prescriptions that are highly abused um, and highly addictive as well um, and see if they've gone to multiple doctors to receive those prescriptions as well as multiple pharmacies. Um, and that's usually a sign of uh, when you see a red flag on that patient record in the system, that's a sign that they've gone to multiple practitioners or pharmacies and that they may have some kind of uh, substance use disorder or whatever treatment plan that they might be on may not be working, for example. So it's kind of to catch anomalies or catch mm -hmm. or help improve coordination even, I suppose? Correct, yes. And, you know, in terms of coordination, just making the clinician more aware of the patient's history of having received these dangerous drugs and then hopefully making better clinical decisions with that information. So how is the state of Michigan working with hospitals and pharmacies and physician offices to increase the util utilization of MAPS? So we have done a lot of outreach and education efforts prior to the launch of the new system on April 4th of last year. And uh, what we did was when we started the whole replacement project of the system, we engaged the hospital association, we engaged MSMS, um, MAFP, the dental association, veterinarians, our board chairs. Uh, we, we pulled together a pretty significant size stakeholder group and we actually presented to them 
what they can expect with the new system before we launched. Uh, we also used uh, those groups to help us with finding uh, licensed professionals that could test the system before it launched so they could become familiar, familiar with how the new system was going to work and function and provide feedback as well. And then post go live, we have worked with um, hospitals, physician group practices, uh, the healthcare associations statewide to actually conduct trainings on MAPS. And we recently saw a letter sent from Lieutenant Governor Brian Kelly to hospitals and health systems. How um, has the executive branch been involved in this process? So the executive branch, um, you know, as well as our legislative partners, have been taking the lead in supporting all of the efforts and initiatives that are being carried out, whether it's by um, our department within licensing and regulatory affairs or DHHS or uh, Michigan State Police, um, for example. And so um, they have been extremely helpful in supporting all of those efforts um, and supporting what the Opiate Prescription uh, Drug Abuse Commission has been doing as well and um, really giving us the departments and agencies uh, the the latitude to address this issue collectively and collaboratively, not only within state government, but working with community leaders and working with our um, healthcare providers, working with law enforcement um, to really address this issue. And so they've been, um, you know, great in terms of showing that leadership, supporting us in that effort, um, and then also helping us um, with, you know, additional resources as needed. And in that letter, he talks about um, integrating MAPS with a hospital's existing electronic health record system. What does integration mean and how does that help with the whole utilization of MAPS? So integration uh, essentially helps with meeting the mandate um, requirement that will become effective June 1st to be not only registered, but use the system prior to issuing an, uh, controlled substance uh, Schedule 2 to 5 prescription uh, for more than a three-day supply. So what it does is it allows for the clinician to uh, pull up a MAPS report announced called NARCS Care Report right from the uh, practitioner's EMR. And so what that does is it prevents that practitioner from having to log into the EMR, log out of it, log into MAPS, log out of it, then go back to the EMR. It just pulls it up. If that patient that they are seeing that day, um, if, if they are in MAPS, it will automatically pull right into the EMR. And with the click of a button, they can see the full report. So it really streamlines the whole process. Absolutely. And it makes it very efficient. And as you know, time is money. So um, it, it addresses that issue of having to go in and out of different systems. And so how can hospitals or health systems learn more about integration and get the process started for integrating for their providers? So the best way is to go to our website and um, at michigan.gov mi maps info. And uh, on that page actually has all the information, tutorials on how to register, how to use MAPS system, as well as at the very top, if they click on software integration resources, click on that, that'll take them to the entire page for integrations. It's really a um, three-step process. So uh, first they have to uh, submit an application. It's one page. Uh, the application uh, identifies who their vendor is for their EMR, the point of contact for their vendor, 
point of contact for the hospital health system or the hospital itself or the provider. And, um, and then uh, the number of prescribers or pharmacies, pharmacists that will be accessing and using the system through the integration. And then once that's completed, then they also need to sign and send back the terms and conditions. The terms and conditions and the application are on our website. We then submit that to APRIS Health. So the third step is then APRIS Health will reach out to the provider and the vendor and schedule an initial kickoff meeting. That's that's uh, the process in a nutshell. And our goal is to uh, reduce the barriers and, and make it happen for them. And there is funding available to help with the... There is. Yeah. So um, out of the initial $2.47 million that was appropriated to replace MAPS, we had roughly $1.8 million left over. And so um, with uh, the support of the lieutenant governor um, who announced uh, that we would do, take that money for statewide integrations, uh, we are using that money uh, to cover our vendor cost, APRIS Health, to do the integrations, and then the licensing fees post the integration up to August 31st of 2019. The link to those MAPS resources is in the show notes, and there you can find information to get registered if you're a provider or get the integration process started for a hospital. Finally, we'll talk to Dr. Robert Nolan, the Director of Emergency Medicine at Lakeland Health in Southwest Michigan, about how the opioid crisis is impacting patients at his hospital and how they're using maps and other tools to try to help. We've had some fairly significant changes over the last three to four years, and and it's kind of been a twofold impact. Uh, The first is as more awareness has come out in the community about the opioid crisis and the potential abuse of opioids, uh, we've noticed that um, a lot of the concerted efforts that both outpatient and inpatient groups have had at reducing the number of opiates out there has made patients um, more aware and more cognizant of this as an issue. The result of that has been twofold, some good and some not so good. You know, some of the good is that I think you know, we're, we're having for the first time patients actually initiating conversations with acute injuries of not wanting to um, start opioids or being concerned about it. Um, the other side of that that has not been good is that those who have been uh, using opioids long-term for quite a bit of time, um, some of them have been cut off from their primary care providers or the providers that we're giving them. Uh, these people have been either flooding to the emergency department with some of their chronic issues uh, or, or finding alternative ways of, of medicating themselves if they're not getting that. So, you know, one, one of the issues that we see is a lot of these folks that have become dependent on these narcotics um, try to find substitution. So they either come into the emergency department or are going in for chronic pain issues, and a, a, a very appropriate spotlight has been shined in the ER of reducing uh, the number of narcotics that are going out of the ER. Later on, I, I can discuss, you know, what we've specifically done in terms of policies. But that's forced a lot of these folks, and, and this kind of depends on how you look at it, but, but they have gone out to the community and found substitutes for their narcotics. So we have seen a significant increase in overdose and uses of heroin. Uh, some of these have, you know, just in talking to patients, have come from using narcotics, uh, pain pills and things as, as stepping drugs. And so they go from their Norcos that they can't get anymore, and we've seen them turn to alternatives, and heroin is a very popular alternative. Uh, I worked this afternoon um, before this conversation, and I had three heroin overdoses that came into the emergency department, uh, two of which that were treated out in the field by our law enforcement officers within the nasal 
um, Narcan, which is um, saving a lot of people, but we're getting those overdoses, and one was uh, treated by uh, EMS before they came in, you know, all young, relatively healthy folks, all of whom had history of using Norcos or other pain medications that have been prescribed to either them or family members that they've gotten a hold of. So we're, we're really seeing an epidemic in terms of abuse problems and people finding alternative ways to treat that addiction or to, to treat those medications that they've become addicted to um, that that are certainly not healthy. And then, of course, all the downstream problems of if they're not using clean needles or, you know, you, we're having problems with hepatitis C, uh, you have you know, lots of skin infections, there's, there's all sorts of other issues. I had another gentleman that, that came in today that had been clean for a while, had some psychosocial stressors, went back to using again, and now is in the emergency department for suicidal ideation because his life was spinning out of control. So I, I think the intention on, you know, this, this light that we're finally shining on a huge problem we have is really good. There's just also been some um, undesired downstream effects that I don't think we've dealt with as well as we possibly could have. Yeah, so, you know, just because physicians are more appropriately prescribing, you know, I guess legitimate opioids, um, there's still other options out there for people who, you know, want them for for either dealing with pain or just for abuse purposes, right? Exactly. It, and I think we, we embarked at Lakeland on a fairly ambitious project back in 2015, um, and we started in the emergency department. What we did was we looked at the milligram of morphine equivalent that each provider was giving on a monthly basis, just across the board for the number of their patients. And we also broke it down to, you know, per hour's work. So you, and per patient scene. So you had a pretty good idea, um, how many narcotic equivalents you were prescribing your patient population. And what we did was we unblinded it. And in a meeting, I showed it to all my colleagues and I showed it to all my residents. So we knew who the high prescribers were and we knew who the low prescribers were. And we had a big discussion, an open kind of bare knuckle discussion about, guys, we know this is a problem. You know, we treat narcotic dependence and overdoses all the time. What are we going to do about it? And I'll tell you, nothing affects prescribing behavior like peer pressure. And immediately, you know, my residents that were on the higher end of that scale, boy, they were like, you know, coming up with all sorts of reasons why they were on the higher end of the scale. And, you know, others that were on the lower end of the scale were like, well, you know, we're, this is what we do. And it really spurred quite a very vigorous conversation in terms of what can we do. We followed that over two years, and our data has shown that out of the ER, we had a 41% reduction in our narcotics that left the emergency department. You know, some of it were easy things where people were like, oh, my gosh, my default when I go to prescribe Norco for a broken bone was 20 tablets. And we had a big discussion of, is that necessary? And we mostly agreed as a group, you know what, that really isn't. So we cut it down to 10. Um, we had quite a few other discussions in terms of, you know, when should we give it, what sort of alternative plans. It really got a people's attention. And as you went through every six months and regenerated those numbers, people got really, you know, excited. They were like, oh, look, I've dropped my narcotic prescriptions down a certain amount. Um, so that was very beneficial. About a year after we did the ER version, we went and did it to the outpatient world. We blinded the information to the outpatient docs because we kind of felt that that wasn't quite ready for prime time for everybody. So you knew where you were in relationship to your peers, but you didn't know who your peers were. Okay, that still got their attention, not as dramatic of a drop as we had in the ER, still got their attention. Now, the unintended consequence that we had with this, and this is kind of a concern, is that we didn't have a robust diversion plan for all of these patients in our community that had been receiving large amounts of narcotics. 
um, for chronic pain issues, and, and we can argue whether those were appropriately prescribed or not, but they were currently taking them. And so what we found was these patients were getting either shut off from their primary care docs or their primary care docs were saying, I can't take care of you for this problem anymore. You either need to go to a pain specialist. They were losing access to their chronic pain medications. They would come to the ER. The ER was very cognizant of the fact that we were watching this and everything else, and they would say, we're not going to refill these medications. Again, that's probably appropriate, but now here are patients that have been on long-standing narcotics for years on end that were finding their supply was just disappearing. And we didn't have a good alternative for what are we going to do to help these patients come down? What are we going to do for narcotic dependence? What are we going to do? You know, we, we would offer them some things. But, you know, you have to be in the right mind to say, I've, I've got an issue with my narcotics. And a lot of these patients aren't there yet. A lot of them are like, oh, yeah, there's drug problems out there, but that's not me. And I have, I'm the only one who has real chronic pain. Everybody else is a faker and all that. And, and these people then, these, a lot of these were the ones that were going out and trying to find other ways to supplement what they've been taking for years and years on end. So if I could rewind the clock and probably do it all over again, um, I'd love to have a little bit more of a robust landing pad for a lot of these patients that were kind of um, lost, I guess is the best way of putting it, because they didn't have a lot of alternatives um, that, that were really successful in helping them. You know, we, we don't have a very robust, uh, community-wide process of how do we wean these people that have been on these medications for a long period of time and really do so in a, a really compassionate way. Um, it takes a lot of work and it's hard. Um, and a lot of these patients, again, are not open to it to do it on their own. Um, it takes a lot of mental health work. It takes a lot of coordinated efforts. It, it's easier to start these problems and it's much harder to address them. What other tools or resources are physicians in your emergency department or hospital using to try to ensure you're safely working with your patients to manage pain? What, one of the things we did, we did quite a few educational seminars within our um, residency and with our attendings as alternatives to narcotics for pain control. Um, had quite a few educational seminars out there to give, give the physicians tools to use um, outside of just narcotics. Um, sometimes it takes a lot longer. You know, we, we have uh, an entire session talking about biofeedback. We had um, sessions talking about non-opioid pain relief, um, you know, some of the uh, natural pain medications, exercise, things along that line. Um, the other one that we did was we produced a little card that we hand out that um, our guidelines for safe pain medicine prescribing. We found one of the big challenges in the emergency department was kind of depersonalizing that interaction of judgment, I guess is the best way of saying it. Uh, one of the big challenges that we notice is that as we approached patients who were on long-standing narcotics or who we were concerned had a narcotic problem, um, just initiating that conversation a lot of times got patients very defensive. Um, you know, I handle all of the complaints for the emergency department, and um, probably one of the most common complaints I hear is, you know, the doctor treated me like I was a, a drug user or like I was a druggie. And a lot of that is defensiveness on the patient. There, there is uh, definitely a problem on the provider side, too, of, you know, kind of coming at this in a non-compassionate way. And so by producing this card, and we have this up everywhere, we have it, as soon as you come into the emergency department, it's, it's Lakeland Safe uh, Medicine Prescribing Guidelines, and we actually hand them to patients and say, we really do care about you, and we do care about your pain, but we also care about the potential harm that we could do by giving you these medications. And, and it's a list 
Um, it was kind of a combination of some of the guidelines that came through from our college, the American College of Emergency Physicians. We used uh, California and Colorado's safe prescribing um, guidelines as well and, and kind of came up with our own there. But it, it really, it, it's something that we can hand the patient that hopefully de-stresses this we are being judgmental and reinforces we actually really care about your long-term well-being. We do care about your pain. We do care about um, what happens to you. But, but there are things, you know, giving you narcotics for chronic long-standing back pain has never been shown to be beneficial and is actually harmful to you. And, and we're not giving you these Norcos, not because we want to be mean and not because we're being jerks and not because we're being judgmental. We're doing this because it's the compassionate thing and the right thing to do because we're worried about what's going to happen to you. And, and having that discussion and actually having the literature and that card that you can present really kind of takes some of that judgmental uh, feelings out of it. Now, it doesn't always work, but it certainly has been very beneficial for us. Um, mm -hmm. Another thing that we've implemented that has really been quite helpful for us, we're one of the first in the state to use uh, a product called NARCare, and it is embedded in our electronic medical record, our EHR. And as soon as you bring up the triage face sheet of every patient that comes in, um, it automatically taps into the MAP system. So it, we can get the last two years of sedatives, narcotics, and um, amphetamine-type medications that the patients have had in Michigan, in Indiana, and in Illinois. And um, I don't know if your, your listeners have used the, uh, the MAPS program before. It's a very good program, but it's not necessarily the most accessible. And it's a second, separate program outside of your EHR, and it takes four or five steps to actually put in the patient's information and log. We found that um, those extra steps really were prohibitive of, of providers real-time looking up patients. And what they were usually doing is looking up what we would all know as very high-risk patients, and those moderate-risk patients we weren't looking up. And so this allowed us to real-time go into every single patient that checks into the emergency department and see immediately what their history is in the last two years of narcotic use or hypnotic use or stimulant use. And it's, it's been extremely helpful for us because before you even set foot in that room, you've got good information on the last time they were prescribed medication, how many different providers are providing medication, and what's the total number of, you know, morphine equivalents or um, benzodiazepines or things like that. And that's really helped me and my providers in just starting that, that conversation because you can go in and say, hey, I see that you were up in, you know, Lansing, Michigan just two days ago and they gave you 60 Norco at your primary care doc's office and yet you're down here now and you're saying that you're out of pain medicine and you haven't had anything in, in two months. Well, you know, what, what, what happened here? Where's this prescription? That immediately changes the conversation. And it's been very helpful to be armed with that information and to be armed with it in a quick manner where you're not struggling to find it or, you know, where, where you have to have a high risk of or high suspicion before you even look it up. These, we've had several people that have come in, um, especially folks that are quote unquote from out of town that before I even set foot in that room, I can see a very, very history of them getting multiple narcotics from multiple different sources, very high risk behavior that we all know uh, lends itself to risks for overdose and risks for abuse. If it's a patient from out of town that maybe doesn't have an extensive history there, you wouldn't be able to just tell that by looking at them. So being able to access that result, that report so immediately makes such a big difference. 
it makes a huge difference. And when we've got a, and I'm sure everybody has a large transient population, um, it's just very nice when you get a patient in that comes in with common low back pain or chronic knee pain or what have you, and they're new to your electronic medical record, but then your automatic map system comes up and you can see, oh, wow, they really do have quite an extensive history throughout Michigan and Indiana, per se. And, you know, and that, that again, it, it also helps you open up, oh, you know, I, I see you've been in, in a lot of different areas. Um, some of these folks, you can help them with social issues as well because it, it, it kind of leads you to this conversation of what's going on in your life that you're bouncing all over the place, receiving pain medications. A lot of these folks don't have primary care docs. So it, it, it opens up a lot of avenues for us to try to intervene and help them on multiple fronts, not just the narcotic front, but, you know, some of these folks could be um, dealing with all sorts of psychosocial issues that are wrapped into this as well. Um, one of our, our residents the other day actually picked up somebody who was being human trafficked uh, through this. You know, it was a, a young woman that came into the emergency department and they noticed they'd received narcotic prescriptions at quite a few different emergency departments and it didn't seem to make a lot of sense, um, led to a deeper conversation and found out that actually she was being trafficked. There's a lot of secondary processes and gains that you can get, you know, by some of this information. So what do patients need to know about these changes and this focus on safe pain management? You kind of touched on that a little bit, especially for people who are dealing with chronic pain issues. But, you know, what do you what would you wish kind of everybody who's coming into your emergency department knew um, about what's going on? So I, I think number one is, is that they need to understand that narcotics are not benign and that it, it is really a potential stepping stone um, to abuse later on. Uh, it was fascinating. A little article came out and, uh, a couple months ago that looked at pediatric patients that were given narcotics uh, for, like, broken bones or post-op uh, pain and things like that. That was associated with almost a 40-fold increase of potential narcotic abuse later on in their life. So just any kind of exposure is, is a huge thing. Um, you know, one of the challenges that, that we have is in discussing with patients is that the absence of pain is not necessarily our goal. It's reduction in pain. And just having that conversation that, that we're never going to get rid of all discomfort in the entire world. I, you know, I, I'm always kind of amazed. I have patients that come in and they're sitting there texting and joking on the phone and you ask them their pain scale and they're 10 out of 10 pain. Okay, there's a reality problem there in, in understanding what true pain is. So, you know, the first thing is, is that, you know, life is not necessarily a pain-free existence and that sometimes, you know, if you sprain your ankle or you burn yourself or what have you, there's going to be pain associated with it. And, and that's okay. You know, you, you don't need to worry about it. Secondly is that, you know, we really should try as best we can to find alternatives other than narcotics to treat pain. And when we do have something that is very painful that requires narcotics, you know, broken bones, things along that line, the shortest dose possible is the best. And then throw away anything that you're not using afterwards. Uh, we know that the risk of addiction, if you've been taking it anywhere from three to five days in a row, starts to climb dramatically the longer you're on these. So the shorter we can, the better off we are. Um, and, and the last thing I, I really wish they would understand is, and, and again, we as providers need to do a much better job messaging this, is that just because we don't give you narcotics doesn't mean we don't care. We do care and we want what's best for you. But part of our job as providers is to balance the risk and benefit to every treatment we do. And we're now finally coming 
around to thinking and understanding that prescriptions of narcotics are not benign and they don't just happen in a complete vacuum and that there's a risk associated with it. it there's certainly a benefit and we have to be very careful and cognizant as providers to understand that every time we write that prescription for narco for something that there's a potential risk of overdose or addiction later on and that we need to have that honest conversation and, and we're not doing so in a judgmental manner, we're doing so because we actually care about the outcome and we've seen what happens at the end of this to these folks that do get caught up in the narcotic abuse and that do get caught up in that, you know, it ruins lives, it ruins families and, and we now understand that we have to take it much more seriously and, and it's done so out of care and compassion and not out of being judgmental. Be sure to check out the show notes for information and resources for physicians, hospitals, or patients who are interested in learning more about the opioid epidemic and what's being done to combat it. Thanks to Paige, Kim, and Dr. Nolan for being part of this episode, and thanks everybody for listening. Let us know what you think by emailing communicate at mha.org or leave us a review. And be sure to join us next time for the next My Care Champion cast.